the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. The long and winding road. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt live inside the Beltway. The re-release of Let It Be album is today, and it's oddly corresponds with the release of Ross Douthat's brand new book, The Deep Places. Ross joins me now, New York Times columnist extraordinaire and author of The Deep Places. Good morning, Ross. Uh, it's good to see you. It's good to see you too, Hugh. How are you doing? I, I'm I'm exhausted by your book, and now I'm scared, and I'm frightened, and I don't want to take my children to Maine ever again, and my in-laws who live up there who downplay Lyme disease. I, I you know I want to evacuate Connecticut at the end of your book, Ross. Uh, so have you had that? <laughs> That's a strong. It's a strong endorsement, Hugh. I'm going to put a, that on the paperback cover. It, it's absolutely harrowing. And I, you know, my wife and I, after 39 years of marriage, have a saying, we have no problems because we don't. We're upper middle class one percenters who live in the Beltway in fabulous luxury and we're not sick. And so I always say we have no problems whenever we have a mild irritation. And you refer to that before you entered into the world of the ill. Uh, you, you used to think that minor things like losing your preschool teacher was a major deal. Yeah, we were that we were that one percent, you know, blessed by God, professional class couple. We had two little kids. We were trying to have a third kid. We lived in uh, Capitol Hill in a nice row house. And we had this fantasy. We were both from Connecticut, my wife and I from different parts. And we had this fantasy of, you know, getting outside of the corruptions of the city and uh, escaping to some kind of rural paradise. And when I was about 35, we actually did it. We sold our house, made a lot of money because the D.C. real estate market was hot, plowed it into a 1790s farmhouse that we thought was gorgeous and ended up being a kind of Stephen King style overlook hotel destination because while we were in the process of moving, I got sick and it was an incredibly mysterious illness. It basically devastated me for about four months before we figured out that it was probably Lyme disease, a disease you get from a tick bite. I probably was bitten by a tick while we were literally doing the inspection on this slightly overgrown property. Um, and but we had, you know, we we'd moved, we'd made the leap. And so for the next uh, well, I mean, it's still ongoing. I've gotten a lot better. But for the next five or six years, I had to basically figure out how do you get better from a disease that, frankly, lots of doctors don't even believe exists in the sense that Everyone agrees Lyme disease exists, but there's tremendous controversy about the chronic form where once you've taken four weeks of antibiotics, you're supposed to be better. 
I wasn't better. Lots of other people aren't better. And um, it sent me on the, the fascinating, harrowing, but hopefully occasionally entertaining journey that's the subject oh, of this book. It's wildly entertaining in the, in the way Good. that Jaws is wildly entertaining. It's Jaws about Lyme disease. And so by the end of it, I'm exhausted for you. And I'm thinking back, you and I did an event together during these six years when you alluded to being ill, but you didn't disclose. And so I'm being the, the intensely private person. In fact, let me pause. I can't believe the self-disclosure level of the deep places, Ross. I'm uncomfortable with it because I'm intensely private. Did you have trouble getting to that level of transparency? I mean, one thing that I found was that having an illness like this sort of strips away your filters. Um, so I'm a very, I'd say I'm a, not a private person, but I'm a very careful person. You know, I very careful in what I say on Twitter, very careful in the controversies I stoke. But when you're really sick, you sort of lose, yeah, you, you lose certain filters. So I would be the guy, I don't know what I said to you at that event, but I would be the guy in green rooms where people would say, how are you? And I'd say, oh, let me tell you about my terrible chronic illness. Um, and I think that made the book easier to write. And it is, yeah, there is a lot of self-disclosure there. I think it's important, though, to be honest about something like this, because one of the things I definitely found in just going around and talking to people over the last five or six years was if you tell people you're going through something like this, some of the time they don't know, you know how to process it. Sometimes they're really kind, but often they'll say, oh, that's like what happened to me for these five years when I was in my 40s, or this is like what's happening to my sister right now. And I feel like there are all kinds of stories that our society keeps hidden, basically, of people, even, again, really blessed upper middle class people from the Acela Corridor that people go through um, that that you aren't aware of. And, and I think it's really, I wish that I'd known when I fell into this kind of suffering Honestly, just how common I, I, these kind I honestly, of experiences are. I, I would, too. We're going to have a long conversation after the break, Ross. But I, I told the Fetching Mrs. Hewitt last night, I wish I had read this when her mother, who had MS, and her father had Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, and my mother had breast cancer, but to understand people with chronic long illnesses. And this book is for everyone of any illness, particularly for Lyme disease sufferers or the friends and family thereof. But it's for anyone who wants to understand what's coming, I think, in their life. It's almost inevitable. You don't get to go out like my dad does. Or for young people. And it's yet, it's very, so profoundly faith-filled. And we'll talk about that in the podcast, which I'll play parts of tomorrow. The music means i got to make a transition here, Ross. So stand by. I'll be back to pick up the conversation. The interview now with Ross Douthat continues about his brand new book, The Deep Places. And if you're hearing it on Tuesday, I started the interview with Ross yesterday on the Monday show, and I'm playing this in the first couple hours of Tuesday's show tomorrow because I want everyone to get the deep places. Ross, you begin with tiny bites, devastating consequences. And I, I said to my wife last night, this is a combination of getting my outline ready of Paul Thoreau and Calvin Trill and meet Rick Stees in, in the world of Lyme disease. And, and Abby, a saint, is Alice to Calvin Trillin. And I just want to give a shout out to your wife, because I think my my wife is a great wife and has been for 39 years, puts up with a lot. But your wife really rolled with a series of developments that I think, frankly, might have broken a few marriages. Yeah, it, it something like this puts incredible pressure on a marriage. Um, and in our case, you know, we had this combination of 
one, an incredibly sick husband, two, a disease that's very controversial. So it's hard to know for sure, one, what's wrong with you, two, how to treat it, and three, just how much you can trust the things that your sick husband is saying to you, right? Like there, there is a sense in which even, you know, even if you have total faith in the person you're married to, if they're walking around the house telling you, you know, they're in so much pain and the only evidence of it is these red streaks on their back that they probably just got from, you know, rubbing themselves in the shower, that's a hard, that's a hard burden to carry. And then we had, I had gotten sick because we had made this leap into country living, right? So we'd left this nice row house neighborhood where we knew all our neighbors and everyone had little kids for this farmstead, basically. And over two years, we never met our neighbors. I, you know, I was only functional enough to write newspaper columns, which, as you know, is not actually the, hard, the hardest thing in the world. I was functional enough to <laughs> do that. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. I, no, I keep, I keep doing these interviews where people say it's amazing that you kept writing columns during this pain. And I'm like, I, I can't reveal the secret. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't let but, but, the guilt no, will come for, for you. And there was this, this, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think she worried a little bit about the book that, you know, she would come across as too skeptical of my condition, but basically everyone who's read it has said, oh my God, your wife, your wife is a saint. And there was this moment, this one, um, you know, I, I'm trying to stress that there's humor in the book not just sort of harrowing Stephen King style horror, but there's this moment when I, I had this tweet during the 2016 presidential campaign that, you know, featured a, an assassination scene from literally a Stephen King adaptation, The Dead Zone. And people on the Internet decided that I was calling for Donald Trump to be assassinated, which I emphatically was not. But because of the way the Internet works, the Secret Service actually showed up at our farmhouse and they conduct a whole interview. And I try and explain, look, I'm just I made I made a bad joke on the Internet. I'm I'm sorry. Um, I'm not plotting anything. But then, you know, they take they take your spouse aside and they say, look, ma'am, we just want to know, do you have any reason to worry about your husband's stability here? And, you know, she she said no. But my God, you know, she could have said yes. she could have she said could yes. Have said, idea how many bottles of pills he has stashed away in our in our bathroom so yeah. anyway the, yeah the, the I, decoration I, I, of a house the cleaning up of a house for a showing of an ill person a sick person who has many uh devices i mean i don't know if you hid your device uh pill bottles herbs and you have to clear the house up for a showing uh that sprint it's, it's going to stick with me there's a lot that's going to stick with me I don't know if you know, Ross, the ghost map, which is about the discovery of cholera in England in 1850s or the great influenza about the 1917 Spanish flu. But I put the deep places up there because I think you're going to do for general audiences what those books did for general audiences about uh, 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 cholera and the Spanish flu, which is make them accessible. I had no idea because I, I haven't lived in New England since 1978 that Lyme disease but did you say 400,000 cases a year? It's yeah, it's 500,000, you know, give or take. And they're not all in New England. The disease is in the Midwest. It's in the Appalachians. There's cases in California and Florida. But but New England is the crucial epicenter. It's what 
you know, it's where old Lyme, Connecticut is, then very nice town on the Long Island shore uh, where the disease was first discovered three years before you very wisely escaped, Hugh. Maybe, maybe first discovered. It was Plum Island that I'd like to know about. And what I love about this, Roth, is you have to approach some areas of nuttery, but you approach it with sympathy. And then you say within the nuttery, within the extremes, within the dissenters, within the underground, there are going to be elements of truth that we can't be indifferent to. So the other great thing about the deep places is that establishmentarians like me can be instructed by an establishmentarian like you that don't dismiss the people who are talking what otherwise would hit my ears quackery, right? It's just what hit my your rife machine. Tell people yep. about that. Well, so... Right. So when people have chronic illness in general and chronic Lyme in particular, they become open to trying lots of things that are on the fringe. And I mean, I want to stress that the core thing that I did to get improved from Lyme disease was very sort of straightforwardly scientific. I took lots and lots of antibiotics over a long period of time to try and kill the infection. But I also did other stuff. Um, and one of the th one of the things I did, not based on any rigorous scientific paper, just based on a lot of testimony from sick people, was use a machine that generates sound frequencies that are alleged to shatter bacteria in the way that a uh, opera singer's high note <laughs> shatters, you know, can shatter shatter a glass. Um, and this is just a very, you know, you end up with this box that looks like something from a 1980s sci-fi movie or something that like Lieutenant Uhura would be using in, in Star Trek. And you hold on to um, these two handles and you you run frequencies and the box can generate endless, endless frequencies. And, you know, the book in the book, I literally I have one chapter where I tried to chapter seven to stuff chapter, chapter seven, seven because. Yeah. You can skip ahead to that chapter if you want the weirdest stuff. But if you want to just be persuaded that chronic Lyme disease is real and should be treated and not be freaked out by the strange things, you can skip it. But either way, in that chapter, I describe using things like the Rife machine. And honestly, they did, in fact, seem to work. I and love the fact that you're you candid know, about that. Yeah. That, that is that is that is the reality of, again, it's personal experience. And it's the kind of thing that a skeptic would say, well, of course, they worked because it's all psychosomatic and so on. And I'm I think the book, you know, I'm trying to be as as you said earlier in our conversation, there's a lot of disclosure here. I'm trying to be perfectly honest about things I did. But yeah, but your point is exactly right. I think it's really important. I mean, there's sort of this is a two sided thing. It's really important for people inside the establishment inside the world of official knowledge to recognize that that knowledge has limits. There are things we don't understand and there are things outside it that you need to be open to. The flip side of that that I also try and stress a little in the book is that once you've gone to the fringe, once you've realized that there are some truths out there, you don't just want to stay there and assume that everything on the fringe is true. Right. And this is one of the challenges in our societies. We have this polarization where the establishment can't admit that the fringe has any good points and the fringe sort of creates its own authorities and decides that everything the establishment says is wrong. And somewhere between those two lies reality. There's also an overlay of Donald Trump on that, which Donald Trump pops up like a periscope throughout the deep places because it's a memoir that happens to coincide with his rise, success and loss. And you are 
you're candid about how you wanted to blame Trump for everything, but you couldn't. Uh, you couldn't blame him for this illness at yes. one point. Uh, Ross, has any uh, practicing Catholic like me interviewed you yet about the deep places? Um, as a practicing Catholic, no. I think I've had evangelicals and um, evangelicals and Orthodox Christians, but not a, not an actual, not a Catholic, not a bona fide Catholic like you, Hugh. I'm very grateful. For your discussion of your prayer life, your confession, your experience with Marian devotion, your experience with saint devotion. I'm one of those peoples that you'll see in a Catholic cemetery next week for the seven days where you can get a plenary indulgence for the departed that the church opens up if you've gone to confession and received the sacrament. And people think I'm nuts because I'm just a believing Catholic. But this is a very Catholic book. Has anyone else told you that yet? Not. I mean, people have have stressed the you know, there is obviously a sort of a strong spiritual side, but it comes it is in it, it comes through asking the saints for help, basically, to the extent that I, you know, part, part of the book is describing what it's like to pray and have sort of no response. Right. There's a, a long stretch where I would literally wander into empty churches and lie on the floor in pain, sort of begging for help. So it's not it's not a book that tells you about sort of like a disciplined monastic prayer life. It tells you about a desperate, flailing prayer life. Um, which I think everyone gets to. I, yeah. No, I mean, this is this is the you know, what's that? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you sort of learn in suffering. You learn that beginning. You learn um, you you learn what God is, what God can deliver you to. And then, you know, you get sort of moments and signs along the way that are not necessarily the great healing cure. I didn't, you know, I didn't go to Lourdes and get cured or anything like that. Instead, I had these moments that were like signposts, sort of indicators that I was on the right track. And some of them came, you know, the, the sharpest one came saying, saying Hail Marys after a confession. And then thereafter, there was just sort of weird, you know, you would, I would literally ask my, my name saints, I'm Ross Gregory Douthat. And I would ask Gregory. And when I was confirmed as a Catholic, Athanasius, you know, because I'm, Athanasius, because I'm, I'm, you know, I was a pretentious 17 year old. Um, and you asked for help and you ask, you know, straying a little bit beyond those bounds, you know, you asked, Departed relatives who you think might have is made that it Wilbur to Snow. Wilbur Snow's in the that acknowledgments, is, and I is, thought that mu that must be a departed relative. The the the, acknowledge, the acknowledgments, if you read them carefully, have several saints and several departed yes. relatives noted in them. Yes, is Wilbur one of the departed relatives, or is he a saint that I don't know anything about? I didn't look him no, up. No, he is. I wanted he to is ask the he's question. not. He's not. He's not a Catholic. He's my great great grandfather. Uh, he was actually governor of Connecticut for a month because he was the lieutenant governor, lost the race for governor. Then the governor retired. So he got to be governor for like this incredibly short span of time. Um, but he was also a he was a poet and a sort of transcendentalist. You know, if he, he he's not he's not he didn't make it into heaven on sort of the Catholic Express, but he's been dead long enough that I, I felt like some outreach might 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 bear some fruit. I want to make sure that people realize that the bottom line message of Ross's book is to endure. Uh, you write on page 185. I want to get it right. My youngest child, uh, your third girl, fourth child, is a vindication of everything I have done to try and save my own life. Her life is a vindication of everything I've done to try to save my own life. I find that to be a beautiful statement. I am curious if you've 
thought through how your children will experience you and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren through this book? I mean, a lot of it obviously depends on, you know, the next 15 or 20 years of parenting. But my my hope is that our kids, they're now 10, 8, 5, and 1. And my hope is that they were young enough for the worst of it when I was really incapacitated, um, that their memories of that will be a little dim. And so they will mostly experience it as a kind of family story that is not part of their own suffering, but something that they can read, hopefully feel some gratitude that I did manage to endure and get well enough. Again, I mean, we, 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 it was a big dilemma whether we could have a fourth child because I was still sick in many ways. Um, so hopefully sh that child will be particularly grateful. But, you know, I, my, my assumption is with, with anything like this, right, that you write an account like this, people can read it and sort of get it and appreciate it. But especially for your children, you know, there will come moments of suffering in their own lives when hopefully this will be a resource, right? So there's sort of come two moments you're of writing joy. for. I, the moment of joy that is a breakthrough moment that you recount is being at a classic family picnic with your two dirt scrubbed into their faces, ta uh, children running around and your toddler son chasing after them. And you manage to get through an entire afternoon without being aware of your disease and that you realize yes. subsequent. I got through an entire afternoon without being aware of my disease. It's the promise of normalcy, it's, of joy. Right. Well, and it's the and right, and it's the fact that normalcy is great, right? Like that's that is the thing that you really, it, it you really is brought home by being sick in a way that sort of puts normalcy out of reach. The idea of just like normal fatigue, a normal crash into the couch at the end of the day, a normal glass of wine, a normal family picnic. Um, there's a joy laced into these things that it's easy to sort of miss or take for granted until it's taken away from you. And, you know, obviously, the reality is that not everyone who suffers from chronic illness gets better. And I haven't gotten all the way better, um, but I've gotten better enough to be able to say, you know, just I can take a bike ride and appreciate even, you know, just the wind in your face, not in my hair, because I'm a good, you know, Connecticut citizen and I wear a helmet, <laughs> but the wind in your face is something that you should not, ordinary embodied experience should not be taken for granted. It should be appreciated. So, Ross, since I know you are a fan of epic fantasy, as I was reading deeper and deeper in this, before I came to Eustace, who not surprisingly is the perfect character for this, I was trying to think of, well, Ross and I have talked about the Wheel of Fortune before the Wheel of Time. And we've talked about Brandon Sanders and stuff like that. And I wonder who's been sick in epic fantasy. And I thought of Frodo and Gollum. And you either become Gollum and you don't get better, you become Frodo and you endure. Or Matt Cawthon, Matron Cawthon from the Wheel of Time, who's sick for a long period of time with a debilitating illnesses taken care of by uh, the, the hero of that epic. And, and did you have anything on which to rely from your vast reading and your love of that? as a hopeful thing in the course of your illness? Did you keep reading when you were this sick? It was actually really hard to read. Um, I sort of returned to books from childhood or adolescence a little bit. So yes, some, definitely some fantasy books like Watership Down that were really important to me when I was 14 or 15. Sort of reading reading stuff you don't know when you're, I mean, the, the, the feeling that this disease created for me, it varies for people, was sort of vice-like, like your body couldn't relax into, into anything, really. And 
that that made reading hard. Um, I would say that what what it's it instilled a deeper appreciation for the thing that lies behind the kind of fantasy novels that you and I both love, which is fairy tales. And this sense of like, well, what are fairy tales really about, right? They're all, they're about imprisonment and transformation and ultimately redemption and escape. Um, so just like watch, you know, my girls in this, you know, rambling half haunted house that we're living in watching Disney movies like Tangled, you know, the Rapunzel movie or Beauty and the Beast, where there are these sort of themes Um it you know they're just they're just sort of the cheap Disney versions of the fairy tales, yeah, but the they Grimm, actually have the power brothers. for me. Sorry, I, I said they're yeah, the Grimm right. brothers. They come from, right, they come from the brothers Grimm, right, and they come from folklore, and they come from this sort of I think deep you know primal unconscious of the human race, and they don't just relate to illness. There are many ways to be imprisoned and transformed, but in an illness, just something like you know just the song from Tangled where. The princess is sort of seeing her, you know, where she's from for the first time. And it's something like, and at last I see the light. It's, you know, it's this is not a this is not a great work of Western art, but it's it sort of stirred these incredibly strong emotions in me because, you know, you feel like you're in a fairy tale. You feel like, well, you well that's are why you went to see Dune. I, I follow your Twitter feed. And so you, you killed part of your book launch dead time with Dune. And I haven't seen Dune yet because yes. I'm only going to see it IMAX. But I had read Dune a couple of times. The cycle, at least four or five of them, I stopped when it got crazy. But it it yeah. becomes <laughs> you, you look for uplifting moments, and I I think your experience of suffering. Do you remember one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich how how Ivan yes. Denisovich goes out and builds a brick wall and escapes from his suffering by labor? It, it's a yes. crucial moment for me. Well. I was relating Ivan Nedesevich to this, but I was also relating endurance, the, the history of Shackleton's expedition. Because I honestly, with the fleeting ideas of taking your own life that you dispel, and with a very memorable line, that which doesn't kill you doesn't kill you. I, it, it's a brilliant line. And so you, you give people hope, but you also, suffering is not for me. I'm a weenie, Ross. I don't want this. I, I, you know, maybe purgatory is going to extend out for millennia for me because I haven't been. Uh, uh, but suffering, I mean, look, as you can tell, though, from reading this book, suffering wasn't for me either. I didn't I wasn't a stoic. I you endure because you you have to right? the I mean, there are you the the universe you, you can give up. Right. But in, as long as you stay alive, the universe doesn't care if you give up. It just keeps asking you to continue. So, you, you know, you have a terrible day and you say, that's it. I give up. I'm beaten. I've lost. I surrender. And then you still have to get up the next morning and write your newspaper column and take care of your kids. And yeah, so I want to stress, I was not in any way, a, I probably learned some stoicism through this, but I wasn't a stoic. I did endure. And I did, I, I also want to stress, especially for anyone listening who, who struggles with this kind of thing or knows someone who struggles with chronic illness, that not for every illness, not for the ones, you know, that face us in the end, but for a lot of them, you can get better. Maybe you can't get all the way better, but it's not just enduring. It's also figuring out how to fight, how to find doctors who can help you. The medical system is completely <laughs> stacked against people with mysterious conditions, as everyone with long haul COVID is figuring out. And you, you have agency in this struggle. And, you know, it wasn't just endurance that got me through. It was 
always thinking, how do I get better? Always There's also, that. I, I want to close by this, Ross. There's one character in the book that, all, that may need teary-eyed. It's your dad. And it, because I'm his age, and I have children your age, and I pray that they would allow me to bankrupt myself, if need be, to provide them medical care. That they wouldn't even hesitate. And you were reluctant. And every dad out there is going to say, your dad is a hero. And you acknowledge him as such. And you say again and again, because you would have fallen into the abyss financially, but for your dad. I, and I think I've seen that abyss. It's at Skid Row in L.A. It's on the homeless streets of America where people end up by the tens of thousands because they don't have a dad or a mom or a family or a network or a net worth that allows them to tread water when the consequences of illness descend upon you. Yeah. Well, and it's it's more than just the money. It's it's both. I mean, look, I was a very proud person. I had been very successful across my adult life. I was proud that I had never asked my dad for money. You know, I was independent. <laughs> I was making my own way in the world. And yeah, there came a point when when that was that was not possible. And even though I was still able to earn income, we had you know, we were in this sort of disastrous real estate situation. And without his help there, we wouldn't have come through. But it was also it was also emotional because, you know, you were talking about what a burden this kind of thing is on a spouse, on my wife, and having other people to talk to, parents above all, so you can sort of take some of the poison <laughs> that would otherwise be going into your spouse constantly and sort of let it out somewhere else. And then the other thing was that my dad, you know, he, he the house, this sprawling house, like it needed work, it needed help. And there were all these things that I expected to do in my fantasy life of, you know, living in the country and building fences and digging ditches. And I did a little bit of that and we hired people to do a little bit of it. But my dad did a lot of things to the extent that we were able to preserve the house until we finally fled and gave up and sold it. He was instrumental to that, too. So, yeah, it's a, this is a book it's a about cautionary it's a tale. book about having a good it's a cautionary tale, but it's also a tale where the moral is, if you're going to make a terrible, a, ter a terrible life decision, make sure you're living near your dad and he can help you out. Well, part of the humor that has been bedded in the book is the house and your ability to laugh at it as you chop off $10,000, $100,000, $50,000 chunks and then sell it for what you bought it. You were reaching for E.B. White and you almost ended with uh, with disaster financially. I, I think it's a cautionary tale there, but but Ross, we're out of time. The Deep Places is a really magnificent. I, I've liked all your books. I'm going to keep this. I'm not going to let it get out of the house because I'm going to have to reconsult it whenever I am at least tempted to feel bad for myself because I have no problems. <laughs> for now, and let's God willing, it will remain that way, Hugh. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ross. That concludes today's episode of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. Andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.